Hello. <clears throat> For those who I do not yet know, um, I'm Joshua Lawrence, and I am an associate professor of chemistry at Centenary College of Louisiana. Although I still do some research, I spend most of my time teaching courses. My lectures are either 50 or 75 minutes, depending on the day of the week, so um, I hope you brought snacks. <laughs> don't, don't worry, I'm just kidding. I'm not kidding. Um, okay. There is a perceived conflict between religion and science, all the way back to Galileo. Some people would have you believe that the two are inherently contradictory. Today, I'm going to try to convince you that some of the thought processes that scientists use are actually helpful in our spiritual journey. Um, failing that, I'm hoping to at least convince you that science and religion are not contradictory. First, let's talk about the benefits of a scientific perspective. In the responsive reading, we said, Cherish your doubts, for doubt is the attendant of truth. Doubt is the key to the door of knowledge. It is the servant of discovery. While we investigate the mystery of our faith, a little doubt helps. To conduct a free and responsible search for truth, we have to inspect and to some extent doubt each new spiritual insight. That's the first benefit, doubt. Doubt in our current perspective allows us to shift our perspective as we get new information and new insights. Um, the accepted views in science are always changing, sometimes in small ways, sometimes in big ways. Um, I read just the other day that astrophysicists, astrophysicists are now saying that there are three times more stars in the sky than we thought just a few months ago. Um, Doubt is essential for change, but courage to challenge the accepted paradigm is the other half. That's the second benefit I want to talk about today. <clears throat> and when people want to talk about courageous scientific studies, of course, everyone talks about the nitrogenase enzyme. Okay, that, that's, that is, never use that joke again. Okay. <clears throat> To set the stage, I want you to think back uh, to uh, some lines from the Meet the Elements prelude that we, that we had, and it's in your order of service. Plants, bugs, birds, fish, bacteria, and men, I assume that they mean that in the men and women sense, are mostly carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, and oxygen. I want to talk about the nitrogen for a, for a minute. Where do we get nitrogen, um, and, and what do we need it for? So first, where do we get it? Well, we get it from stuff we eat. Okay, but where does the stuff that we eat get it from? Um, the stuff that we eat gets it from, um, gets it from very small um, unicellular organisms, typically bacteria and some higher plants. And that bacterium takes nitrogen from the air and converts it into forms that we can use. And the, we need it for things like uh, proteins, DNA, hemoglobin, lots of other words you may remember from high school biology or may not. But, you know, it's protein. That sounds important, right? You need it for – protein is chock full of nitrogen. And we need that nitrogen, and we get it from these unicellular bacteria. Now, 
Today, we turn a lot of N2 into fertilizer industrially, but before 1900, that was where we got all of the nitrogen. That was the point of crop rotation. We had to give it some time for the bacteria to make some nitrogen in the soil, otherwise we couldn't grow anything. Now we just make it, and that, that's fine, but it's important to know where it came from um, before we started making so much. So, if you'll do me a favor, look at the front of your order of service. Yeah, there, there are figures. I'm sorry. Right below, right below the universe, there is a picture of the part of the nitrogenase enzyme that does the work. Just look at it for a minute. It's a cluster of a whole bunch of stuff. It's got little spheres. Okay, those spheres are atoms. Um, and it's got uh, the little lines connecting those atoms. Those are bonds. Okay, atoms and bonds. Nobody's passed out yet. We're in good shape. Okay, I want you to think of this cluster as the part of the enzyme that does the work. This is the part of, you know, this is the person in your office that does all the work while, you know, I hide in the break room or, or you know, check my mail or whatever. So this is the person that's really doing all of the work, this little cluster. Now look carefully at it, and you can see right in the middle, right there, there's a dark sphere. For years, nobody knew that dark sphere was there, okay? And also, nobody knew how it worked. This thing was a complete mystery. A lot of people were trying to figure it out, and they were sure that this really complicated-looking thing on the right-hand side must be doing all the work, because it was good and weird. And they just kind of ignored the, the big hole in the middle of this, this cluster of atoms. Um, now, some people, a few scientists, kept looking at old data, and they, they kept looking, um, and they kept getting new data, because they felt like there was something wrong. That hole bothered them. So they kept studying and they kept looking. And now keep in mind that these scientists who are looking at old data and acquiring new data to look for a hole in the middle of this cluster, they're, they're looking for something in the hole. They're staking their careers on finding something. In science, where these people are working, it's publish or perish. If they keep looking for something that's not there and they never find it, that study's already been published. They're done. Okay, so they're going to be out of a job. So clearly, that took a lot of courage for them to stake their careers on finding something in that hole. Well, eventually they did. And it turns out that dark sphere is the nitrogen. That place in the middle is where the nitrogen gets turned into the forms of nitrogen that we can use. Without that hole, it couldn't work. So... Those are the two benefits that I wanted to talk to you about of a scientific perspective, doubt and courage. Now, obviously, there are some problems as well. Um, don't worry. At the end of each of the two problems I'm going to talk to you about, I'm going to tell you how I deal with them, so I don't think you're going to leave depressed today. At least not, well, I hope not. First, the world is a cruel place, the natural world. Um, in River Out of Eden, Richard Dawkins writes, The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. 
Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. It must be so. Um, he's a real upbeat guy, Richard. <laughs> so nature can be cruel. Um, even worse, nature is some, the studies show that nature is only kind out of selfishness. So um, let me explain the kind selfishness a bit by telling you a story about George Price. I heard about George Price on this really neat WNYC show called Radio Lab. Um, it's on podcasts. You can, you can download them. It's this really cool and interesting and eclectic radio program. It comes out about once a month. It's awesome. Um, I heard about Radio Lab from one of my friends in the psych department at Centenary, Dr. Amy Hammond. So if you see her gallivanting about town and you like Radio Lab, make sure you thank her. She'll appreciate it. Okay. Anyway, back to George Price. Price received his bachelor's degree and doctorate in chemistry from the University of Chicago in the 1940s. He worked on uranium enrichment for the Manhattan Project. He advanced transistor research for Bell Labs. He did cancer research at the University of Minnesota. And he invented computer-aided design for IBM, all before he was 45. Uh, in short, Price was the kind of scientist that makes the rest of us feel really inadequate. Um, during this time, Price also married. Um, he and his wife had two daughters, but he abandoned his family in 1955. Some people blame his insatiable drive for success. Others uh, blame the conflict between his devout atheism and his wife's devout Catholicism for the split. At any rate, in 1967, Price um, started looking for something that would make him famous, or at least famous to other scientists. He moved to Britain and found his big question. He wanted to know why, from an evolutionary perspective, a person would risk his or her life to save someone else. According to evolutionary theory, we have two jobs. We are supposed to survive and reproduce. That's it. That's the jobs that an organism has. There's no reason for an organism to risk its life to save another organism, um, because that would make it hard for it to survive and then reproduce. Um, Cooperation is present in nature, and this risk-taking behavior to save others is also present in nature in many forms. Um, and he wanted to find a way to fit that together. Um, Darwin noted this problem, too, but he was never able to solve it. Um, in fact, Darwin cited this as the biggest problem with his evolutionary theory, this problem of why is there cooperation in nature. So Price starts doing research. He writes an equation. And the equation explains why it is. Um, in short, the more closely related you are to someone, the more likely you are to risk your life to save hers or his. Because in doing so, you provide the opportunity for your genes to be spread further. Because sometimes you'll save that person, sometimes you won't. But if you do save that person, your genes are spread more broadly. What this says is that um, there is no true altruism. It's a selfish act. And we have this instinct built into our genes, this instinct to help people, and the Price Equation says that this instinct is a selfish act. Some people go even further and argue that no one does anything good without an ulterior motive. Doing good for others ensures that uh, they will help you in the future. Um, doing, good for, doing good helps you gain status. Um, or doing good just makes you feel good about yourself. 
My best friend on the centenary faculty, Scott Shearhart, is an evolutionary biologist, and he will espouse this uh, opinion loudly and often. Um, but I don't think he really believes it. But it's a scary idea that our greatest bravery comes from our desire to protect our genetic fitness. Price was so disturbed by the consequences of his equation, the conclusion that there is no true altruism, that he, he freaked out. He started out trying to help the impoverished in small ways, but he eventually gave away all of his money and turned his apartment into a homeless shelter. And when that failed, he, he set up a squat in an in a abandoned neighborhood and, and started helping the, the homeless people that lived there in small ways. Um, so even the inventor of this equation yearned for true altruism in the world. And we yearn for true altruism in the world. We, we need it. You know, every time a, an ape pets a kitten, it shows up on YouTube, right? I mean, we want to see the world as a kind place. So why is it that we yearn for altruism so much if it's not true? Um, evolutionary theory does not explain why Scott, my evolutionary biologist friend, is the most generous and truest friend that I've ever had. Um, it doesn't explain it. In spite of his belief that altruism is not something that is real, he is one of the most altruistic people that I've ever known. So I believe that altruism and our desire for it prove that there is more going on than just a strict evolutionary perspective. If there were no, if there were really no need for it beyond our genetic propagation of our genes, I don't think we would want it so badly. Now, on to the second problem. Nobel Prize winner Richard Feynman once said, it doesn't seem to me that this fantastically marvelous universe, this tremendous, this tremendous range of time and space and different kinds of animals and so on, all this complicated thing can merely be a stage so that God can watch human beings struggle for good and evil, which is the view that religion has. The stage is too big for the drama. Now, as you use, um, we don't have to think the whole universe was set up so that we can avoid sin. So we're a little bit helped by that. But we still have a problem. Um, Feynman's perspective is that we are inconsequential to the universe. How could anything that we could possibly do impact the universe? So his view is that we can't change it, therefore we don't mean anything to it, therefore we are meaningless in the scope of the universe. Now, I want to read you a bit from a hymn that I thought about using. Um, it goes, Knowledge, they say, drives wonder from the world. They say it still, though all the dusts ablaze with marvels. So what does that mean? How can dust be ablaze with marvels? It's just dust. I mean, it's, you just vacuum it up. You don't want it. How can it be ablaze with marvels? Um, I want everybody to look at this glass of water for a minute. Okay? 
there are more, excuse me, there are more water molecules in the water that I just drank than there are stars in the universe. There are more water molecules in the, the drink of water I just had than there are stars in the universe. Um, so I just drank a universe of water molecules. Okay, let's go back to Here Come the Elements one more time. Plants, bugs, birds, fish, bacteria, and men are mostly carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, and oxygen. That's four elements. An element is, um, it's a, basically it's a block of a thing where all of the atoms are exactly the same. So if, you, if you're wearing a diamond, you're wearing elemental carbon, just carbon. That's all it is, okay? Now, with those four elements, those four elements are 96%, 96% of what makes us up. And yet with only four elements, the human body is staggeringly complex, mind-bogglingly complex, and we're all different. We're all different. So in, in those four elements, we are all different people. So you can imagine the complexity, the chemical um, possibilities in the universe are amazing. Now, add to that fact that there are over 80 elements that are common enough and stable enough that we can do things with them. Um, and you start to get an idea of the staggering complexity that is possible in the universe. So hopefully everybody got a pocket periodic table today. I'm going to now refer to my second prop. Thank you. <clears throat> These are yours to keep. Okay. Who says church doesn't come with souvenirs? Um, anyway, look at your periodic tables. I want you to find um, number six. There's a little number at the top, and you just go one, two, three, four, five, six. You should see it's a little tiny C. Everybody found the little tiny C right there? Number six. That's carbon. Okay. Um, it's its own unique element. It has its own unique personality, different than all the other ones that are on this table. Okay. Um, if I were to reach into you and pull out 5% of your carbon atoms and replace them with silicon... Silicon is the one that's right below. So it's, if you look um, at carbon and you go down one, it is number 14 SI. So I pull out all of your carbons and I put in silicons. That would do, whoops, that would do really bad things to you. You might, you might actually catch fire. I'm not kidding. It, it might actually happen. Silicon and carbon have very different properties. Now, <clears throat> if... We're not dust ablaze with marvels. I don't know what is. And yet, and yet, it's called the periodic table because the variations are regular. As you go down a column from carbon to silicon and to the one below, which is um, the one that's GE, that's germanium, tin, and lead, those properties are predictable. They change in They've changed in predictable ways. Uh, number 32, right below silicon, a very, um, um, a very brilliant chemist actually predicted that that element would have to exist. We hadn't discovered it yet, and because there was a gap in the table, he predicted it would have to be there. And he predicted the properties very accurately. So, so let's look at this for a minute. We've got staggering complexity, and we also have predictability. 
We get both, staggering complexity and predictability. Um, that means that we can take these things and we can rearrange them, we can make new molecules that have never been discovered, and we can predict their properties before we make them. Okay? Um, there are about 100 million known chemical compounds, and many of those did not exist on Earth before we made them. Um, so, and that's what, that's what I get to do. My job is I, I was trained as a, synthetic, as a synthetic chemist, which means that I pull stuff off the periodic table and I put it all together. It's kind of like playing molecular tinker toys for a job. Okay, that's, that's what I do. And I, just me, I'm not, uh, I'm sorry to tell you folks, I'm not an accomplished synthetic chemist, but I've made too many, mole, too many new molecules that had never been made before. To, I lost count a long time ago. There are a lot of people out there that have made thousands or tens of thousands of new molecules in their labs or in their, their years of research. It is not uncommon. There are techniques now to make hundreds of new compounds at a time. So you're starting to see how much is possible with the universe. So what does that mean to me? There are two ways to look at the universe. You can look at it like Feynman does and feel insignificant. Or you can look at the complexity, diversity, and predictability of the universe as the biggest toy box anyone has ever been given. Instead of feeling insignificant, I feel grateful that I have been given the gift of a grand and magnificent universe. Um, I look at it as the greatest opportunity to experience wonder. In an infinite universe, there are infinite questions to be asked. And um, just like with the children, every answer leads to more questions. Every new question is another chance to experience wonder. Every, wonders, every wondrous question gives us the opportunity to explore the mystery. What better gift could the universe have provided? Thank you.